Hi everyone, and welcome to an exclusive podcast brought to you by BJ Oncology. Today, we're delighted to welcome an expert panel of leading lung cancer specialists to discuss the latest developments from the 19th BTOC Annual Conference. Chairing the discussion, we have Sanjay Popat from the Royal Marston NHS Foundation Trust in London, and will be joined by Samreen Ahmed from the University Hospitals of Leicester Trust, David Gilligan from the Cambridge University Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust, and Neil Navani from the University College London Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust. In this podcast, the panel will be examining the impact of COVID-19 on lung cancer care, results from the Checkmate 816 and Adura trials, as well as advances in KRAS inhibitors and antibody drug conjugates, two classes of drugs that have recently gathered a lot of interest. I'll now pass you over to the experts for today's lung cancer session with BJ Oncology. Well, hello everyone. Welcome to the Lung Cancer Sessions hosted by the Video Journal of Oncology. My name is Sanjay Popad. I'm a consultant medical oncologist at the Royal Marsden Hospital and chair the BTOG uh, steering committee. Um, we're going to be deep diving into a number of topics that were discussed with the recent annual meeting that we had of BTOG. And I'm delighted to be joined by three uh, experts and leaders in the field. Uh, first, of, I have my colleague, uh, Professor Samreen Ahmed, consultant medical oncologist uh, in Leicester. I have my colleague, uh, Dr. Neil Navani, consultant respiratory physician at University College Hospital, and my colleague, Dr. David Gilligan, consultant clinical oncologist at Addenbrooke's. So colleagues, we've had a really exciting time uh, at the BTOG annual meeting. We had uh, a lot to discuss, and I wanted just to deep dive into some of the uh, topics uh, that we went into. I just want to ask off by Neil, asking you about what we've all been through in the course of the past um, year. We've had a difficult year uh, in the health service with COVID-19. It's had a, a huge impact in uh, oncology service uh, provision. Can you just tell us about uh, the impact that, it, that it's had and how perhaps we might recover from this? Thanks, Sanjay. So, um, first of all, I think it's worth uh, thinking about briefly this state of play prior to COVID. And I think we were making some, some real headway in terms of improving lung cancer care. Um, there was a lot of optimism about the National Optimal, optimal Lung Cancer Pathway. We were improving early diagnosis um, with awareness campaigns, and we were implementing uh, CT screening. We shouldn't kid ourselves, though. Things were, were, were far from perfect. Our, things like our tobacco cessation services were, uh, I think, uh, you know, not adequate. The number of CT scanners per population in the UK is still horrendously low, I think, 10 per million compared to 70 per million, for example, in Japan. And we've done a, an audit in the national, uh, an organizational audit in the, by the National Lung Cancer Audit that showed actually our services were, were not up to scratch in terms of the service specification. So we were addressing that. We were making progress. I think there was actually a lot of cohesive planning uh, and optimism in the lung cancer world. And I think those, that, that planning and that optimism was being translated into patient benefit. Then, as we know, we were we were really severely hit by COVID. And I think the first of all, one major issue that's occurred is simply a drop in incidents. So during BTOG, we saw a great talk from uh, uh, Professor David Baldwin. He he showed how there had been a 30 percent 
reduction in incidence uh, of lung cancer uh, in the nine months of 2020 since the pandemic really hit. And that I think is for three main reasons. One, we know about the overlap of symptoms and the government's messaging was very strong about asking people to stay at home and not present. And many of those people may have had lung cancer. Secondly, our screening programs, which were either established or just kicking off were, were paused. And I think thirdly, and I think also really importantly, we were doing far fewer CT scans generally. And it's a really important way of picking up lung cancer diagnosis incidentally, uh, particularly early stage disease by carrying out CT scans. So I think there was a, th those factors due to COVID caused a significant reduction in incidence. We then had the situation where there were more emergency presentations. So people were presenting at later stage and also with worse performance status. So all the good work that we had done perhaps in the, in the years leading up to COVID, unfortunately, in that time, had really, be, had really unraveled. And David Baldwin, again, in his presentation, likened it to a natural experiment of how COVID had undone a lot of the work that we'd put in place that had really, really has set us back considerably. You asked Sanjay, what do we need to do now? So I think, I think uh, there, there, we need to sort of, we need to have a call to arms, I think, for lung cancer services. So first of all, we need to reestablish uh, screening services. And I think that's been done really impressively. The major trials that are running screening and the, uh, the 10 hubs that are uh, screening are all up and running. So I think that's uh, uh, really good. I think we need to increase awareness again. And I know that there is a uh, Public Health England campaign sorry, NHS England campaign uh, currently ongoing that uh, uh, is trying to switch that messaging now a little bit and trying to get people to re-present again with respiratory symptoms uh, to their GP. And then I think the third thing and possibly the most crucial is we need to have the appropriate capacity in secondary care, not just diagnostic capacity, so not just EBUS lists and space, but actually workforce capacity as well to help us really get back on track. There's gonna be a backlog that we need to sort out. And then we want to get back to where we were. And then we want to continue on our path uh, to improvement as well. So hopefully we can um, regalvanize our efforts again after uh, now that hopefully we're uh, recovering from COVID and uh, and really start to make improvements again for our patients. So multi multifaceted, multi-pronged uh, approach to to recovery, and perhaps one of these prongs uh, is around uh, stereotactic radiotherapy for uh, patients with early stage uh, lung cancer. David, I want to bring you into this conversation. Prior to COVID, we had an announcement that we were going to have uh, a, a, a more services commission for uh, stereotactic radiotherapy. Has that really panned out over the course of the last year? And is that helping with patients getting uh, uh, treatment where they wouldn't have got it otherwise? Uh, thank, thank you, Sanjay. I, I think um, I have to say that despite the announcements, I think it's still very um, patchy. And I think that's something that we do need to focus on from a number of points of view. First of all, I think the big uh, deficit is that there still is not a 
national rollout so that every single radiotherapy department can offer Sabre for early stage lung cancer. Secondary matter, perhaps less important to um, what we're talking about, is that that it's even more patchy when we're talking about treatment of oligometastatic disease, which can, of course, include lung lung cancer and and, and lung metastasis. But um, I know that uh, in my own region, the rollout which uh, should have taken place hasn't. And when you interrogate why has it not taken place, there are all sorts of small but very irksome reasons why centres are not being able to do it. There, you know, peer review of cases isn't isn't taking place as it should do, and that does cause uh, a problem. The problem that we've had is lack of equity in care, and the problem is that patients um, will not uh, travel um, long distances um, to have their treatment, um, and so I, I think it's something that we 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 have to just push on further. You know, we have to really push and try and get the simple get there it's just like most of these things it just takes a lot longer in getting there than we originally thought or 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 wanted to i mean one thing that did um come out of covid particularly right at the very beginning in the first wave was the uh very quick and collaborative discussions that were had about fractionation how many treatments do you need and uh indeed I think most people felt that you, even within um, Sabre, you could reduce the number of fractions uh, for treatment, and um, that improves patient experience because there's no evidence that, particularly if you're doing it uh, with guidelines, that you you can give treatment in, in less treatments, and also has less impact on um, on on department workload. And, even taking it one step further, there was one poster in BTOG which actually looked at the environmental benefits. So someone actually looked at the less miles that were taken for patients to travel and worked out how many trees that saved. So that was a very quirky but very interesting poster that we, uh, that, that we enjoyed. Thank you, uh, uh, David. Um, so I, I'm hearing from colleagues, and there have been several um, posters looking at this, that patients are presenting later. We're seeing much more advanced disease now than we were, perhaps more patients coming through with, with brain metastases, patients perhaps with malignant pleural effusions. And I'm going to ask, ask Neil, we had a very interesting debate about malignant pleural effusions at uh, uh, BTOC. What, what, what was the summary of of those um, discussions, how should we be managing these effusions? Thanks, Sanjay. Yeah, so we had a really, uh, really interesting discussion. There are a number of options open to us, aren't there, when managing uh, a pleural effusion. We've got uh, an indwelling pleural catheter, we've got recurrent pleural aspiration, and then we've got the slightly more traditional pleuridesis. And obviously with pleuridesis, again, there are a couple of approaches, either via uh, a standard intercostal drain or via medical thoracoscopy, or via uh, a surgical approach. So a number of options open, open to us. What we're very fortunate to have in the UK is really strong, a really strong plural group and really high-grade evidence now uh, for a lot of our interventions for malignant pleural diffusion. So um, we were very fortunate to hear from uh, Professor Rahman from, uh, from Oxford, who's led, uh, together with Professor Maskell in Bristol, some of the really key... Um, internationally leading randomized trials in the management of pleural diffusions. 
So um, we heard about the benefits of uh, uh, an indwelling pleural catheter, particularly um, uh, perhaps less pain for patients. A shorter inpatient stay was a really key aspect, perhaps more cost effective. Um, we found that we heard that a, a significant proportion of patients with an IPC autopleurides. So you might put an IPC in and then find that actually you can take that out subsequently. We also heard from uh, Naj uh, Rahman that uh, you know the, the benefits of a more definitive initial uh, pleuridesis where we sim simply seal the pleural space with a high success rate over 80% for virtually all the methods. Um, and then to top that all off, we had a we had some data on the IPC Plus trial run in the, again run in the UK that actually combined the approaches of putting an IPC in and then actually in, in introducing a sclerosing agent um, into the pleural space via the IPC. Um, so still a number of approaches uh, uh, open to us, Sanjay. I don't think we solved it. I don't think uh, there's one answer. I think it has to be a discussion with the patient. Um, I think uh, there are pros and cons to, uh, uh, to, to those broad two approaches, but a lot of nuances and um, clinical trials in this area are being developed uh, as we speak. So perhaps the, answer, the real answer is recruitment to those trials going forward. Absolutely. We should never forget research. And I really take my hat off to the plural group for, you know, top grade evidence that the UK is uh, producing in this in this space. And I was really delighted that we were able to um, showcase some of the, this work here at our uh, annual meeting. So with our patients with um, metastatic pleural effusions and other metastases, it, it's been a, a you know, highly evolving time of new systemic therapeutics in patients with uh, lung cancer. We've had lots of changes to systemic therapeutics and drug classes over recent years. And uh, Samarine, I'm gonna ask your thoughts on some of the newer drugs that are coming through in our translational uh, session. We had uh, sort of highlights on where we might be going for tomorrow's drugs uh, today. One of the key areas I think is of huge interest are the direct KRAS inhibitors and other uh, drugs which are being developed uh, for this pathway. We know that KRAS mutant uh, advanced non-small cell lung cancer is a sizable proportion of the numbers of patients that we see. KRAS mutations, for example, account for nearly 25% of the variants that we see in adenocarcinoma. We now have uh, two drugs which have shown uh, some efficacy uh, inhibiting a very specific KRAS genotype, something called KRAS G12C. These are direct KRAS in inhibitors. Um, we had a very good discussion uh, about these at, at BTOG. What are your thoughts about drugging KRAS? Is this useful? Uh, what's the, the the early data that we've seen so far? Are you are you really excited by this, or is this just more tosh that is irrelevant for the UK? Okay, so thanks, Sanjay. I mean, I don't tweet very often, but um, one of the slides I did tweet was when KRAS, the waterfall plots for Satorosib, um was presented at World Lung. So just to reiterate, really, you know, this is the target which in terms of numbers is equivalent to all our other targets that we have so far. So this is a major, major breakthrough for clinical practice in, in the world, I would say, for lung cancer. So this is the, the, the target we've been trying to drug for many, many years. And you know, it seemed as if it 
probably wasn't a, um, a mutational driver uh, because we weren't able to drug it. But because of our fantastic um, drug design technology and the way that these um, this uh, drug these drugs have been designed. Um, so what was really interesting for me to see that crystallography um, and that molecular structure, and it was this little gap that they found between uh, the two, the, between the receptor that they designed that drug, and all that time, it, you know, previously it just wasn't possible. And it's more an allosteric type of obstruction, so you block it, and so that, therefore it's not acting as a driver. So, uh, you know, the definitely it's we i think we can definitely say it's a driver for um uh, lung cancer and the g12c variant that you um, mentioned is probably the first one to be tested for so that that's the first our uh, first challenge will be about the testing won't go into that too much at this point in time but once we've identified those um, patients who have this g12c mutation and we've got two drugs, sotorosib and adagressib, and they both look as if they're on target effects. And just looking at the waterfall plots for individual patients and the response rates that they're getting, you, you can't really, it looks the same as your EGFR, ALKS, ROSs. So I'm really pleased that this is um, what's coming out. Uh, and finally, we can say that, yes, it's a mutational driver and we've got two very good drugs and plenty more coming that way. So very impressive data so far. One of the uh, areas I always think about with these drugs is, you know, KRAS is a difficult disease, isn't it? Uh, KRAS mutant uh, lung cancer tends to be seen in our patients with significant or reasonable tobacco exposure. These patients often have uh, comorbidities. I, I don't think we've seen much in the way of CNS data as yet. So I, I think that's something that's currently awaited. The, the, the response rates were reasonable whilst the waterfall plot was was impressive. The response rates weren't what we've seen so far with the EGFR or ALK inhibitors, and neither was the progression-free survival. So are we really that excited? Um, or, you know, is this going to be, you know, tomorrow's flash in the pan uh, when other drugs come through? So I think we're going to have to be a little bit um, wiser in how we use these. Probably a combination of chemotherapy and uh, inhibitors is going to be the way because it's probably not a pure driver, but, you know, it contributes significantly to um, uh, pro uh, propagation of the cancer. So we're probably going to have to look at it slightly different to what we've done with these pure drivers like ALK and um, ROS1. Um, but I'm very excited that these are two very useful and looks like very um, good safety um, arena drugs. Um, we haven't seen uh, horrible safety signals coming through. So I think we could easily combine these with chemotherapy. And th that's probably the way forward because, as you say, these are in smokers. So there's probably a little bit of um, polygenic um, mutational sort of potential there. Thanks, Sammy. The other class of drugs coming through are something called the ADCs, otherwise known as the antibody drug conjugates. So these are generally an antibody which is directed against a particular target to which there is a uh, toxic uh, um, payload which is then delivered through novel uh, uh, linkers. We, we now have a number of ADCs 
coming through targeting uh, proteins which we know about, so HER2, for example, um, HER3, and also TROP2. And many companies are, are, are developing these, these ADCs. Now, we've had a lot of failure with ADCs uh, before. You know, Rover T, I think, was the one that we were all excited about. And uh, Dr. Naidu at uh, BTOG really highlighted in her talk about ADCs how we're all very excited about DLL3 targeting agents in small cell, and that really bombed out in the randomized uh, trials. So what are your thoughts on ADCs? Do you think really this is going to be another flash in the pan, or will the randomized data pan out? Or, or are some of these um, targets, such as HER2, so rare we'll never get randomized uh, data, or we'll just have to have single arm, arm data? Yeah. I mean, I've been treating breast cancer over the last 10 years. So I'm very used to using these. And these were pioneering drugs, you know, to imagine you, it's like a heat-seeking missile. So you find the target, get to the target, release your payload. I mean, how more sexy is that? So the most important development, drug development point was the linker, actually. So they had the two, um, you know, the antibody and the chemotherapy for a very, very long time. And it was always that linker, which was uh, very difficult to develop. So um, having used ABCs for a long time in breast cancer, I'm really delighted to see them come into their remit in lung cancer. But I worry that it's always the target, as you alluded to, it's always the target that's going to be the important thing because you know, how, however um, sensitive your cell may be to the chemotherapy, unless you get the correct target, you know, it's just like any other chemotherapy. So um, trastuzumab deruxtecan is actually only uh, is about to hit breast cancer, actually, and also um, has seen some activity in lung cancer. So again, I'm I'm a little bit um, hesitant to say that the, these are going to make a huge difference in our clinical practice because I'm not sure that we've identified the target in order to be able to deliver those drugs effectively. Whereas in breast cancer, you know, we know it was a very clear oncogenic driver, and that's why it works so effectively. So, yeah, excited, but tentative. Uh, that, that's a very fair, fair, fair summary. We, we, we've seen really very exciting data, I think, with um, Tras uh, Tuzumab Deruxtecan, both in the HER2 lung setting and, as you point out, in the HER2 breast uh, setting. One of the adverse events we've seen with that is pneumonitis. Um, are, are you worried about the rates of pneumonitis we, we're seeing with these these ADCs, um, or is that something that my colleagues such as Neil will be uh, able to deal with without much uh, significant concern? Well, lung cancer patients are very special because obviously they have um, underlying either lung disease or their cancer has caused some damage. So in breast cancer patients, we hardly saw any um, pneumonitis problems but I'm really worried that we're going to see a completely different spectrum of toxicity here. Um, and it doesn't look like as if it's off target effect. So this is what the worrying thing is that, um, you know, our patients are susceptible. They are probably not going to um, be able to have that second insult that another drug toxicity um, entails. So, yeah, I'm worried that this will be the limiting factor of widespread use of these drugs. And when, we, when we're using ADCs, we're effectively using smart chemotherapy, aren't we? We're just depositing chemotherapy closer to home. 
So are we seeing uh, febrile neutropenia and other significant myelosuppression uh, as adverse events in the same way as we would do with systemic chemotherapy? What, what, have, what have our uh, colleagues got to look forward to and our acute uh, oncology physician colleagues got to manage in the uh, acute setting? So there is a bystander effect. So even though you're trying to get to that particular cell of interest and of target, once the chemotherapy is released, there is effect of the cells around it. So it's not truly targeted. And therefore, um, with um, uh, uh, trastuzumab duraxacan, we see thrombocytopenia. We do see myelosuppression. That's fairly limited. You know, um, and hair loss, you know, no hair loss. So, um, and I've used these, you know, drugs in breast cancer as well. So we, we do continue monitoring, but you can give these drugs for 12, 18 months, just like immunotherapy. So it is very different to our, you know, um, blunder busting or come chemotherapy. That's brilliant. So two new classes that we need to look out for, the ADCs and the direct KRAS. Uh, inhibitors. Of course, the masters of uh, dealing with pneumonitis are our clinical oncology colleagues who've been uh, using radiotherapy with sometimes uh, pneumonitis as an adverse event uh, occurring. And of course, our chest physicians have been dealing and sol solving all our medical oncology pneumonitis problems for, for uh, many a while. David, I wanted to, to uh, bring you into the conversation. Um, about combining radiation, particularly some of the more modern forms of radiation with immunotherapy. You know, I would say that we now have four-year survival data from the Pacific study, which shows a spectacular uh, survival improvement. We really have uh, markedly changed, I think, the face of inoperable stage three lung cancer with the data from that trial. Um, where are we going with IO and um, radiation in general in stage three and perhaps earlier? Um, I think that we are looking at hopefully a major step forward in the treatment of stage three disease. And, you know, we might want to widen that discussion a little bit more to, to other modalities, but if we concentrate on um, chemoradiotherapy together with um, immunother adjuvant immunotherapy, obviously the the key uh, the key paper that we all use to quote and clinically experience is the, is the Pacific study, which, as you say, has just published its um, four year survival data, um, which is is excellent, showing you know forty nine percent, just under fifty percent survival in that group. And um, that really is uh, the backbone on which we've got to work from. I would, I think at the meeting, we, we uh, uh, Karim Favafin gave a very good overview, but fundamentally, as we all know, is actually making sure that every single patient who would benefit from this sort of treatment actually has access to it. And I'm not convinced that we're anywhere near there yet. And we can look at it from a number of perspectives. There were quite a number of um, posters in the poster session of single center experience with people doing concurrent chemoradiotherapy and dovolumab. And actually looking at them, uh, there was quite a variation in practice of, you know, looking at how many people had been treated over a period of, three or four years previously. And um, 
some centres were, were using concurrent chemoradiotherapy for some time, others had started using it. And so it's a good thing that the Pacific trial, I think, has actually let people up their game. So where people were maybe a little bit nervous about giving chemotherapy and radiotherapy together, they were more maybe in the sequential camp, a lot of people have moved to the concurrent. And and going back to what you said um, a few moments ago, the radiotherapy technologies that we have, the uh, intensity modulated radiotherapy giving using uh, ARC therapies or VMAT or, or similar, allow us to deliver much better doses of radiation without other organ damage. And it allows bigger or more complex tumors where the, the primary and the lymph nodes are be further apart to be given. So that's, that's really good. But I think we do need to still bang on and going back to what Neil said about the optimum lung cancer pathway, we really need to make sure that patients are getting access to the full range of staging. Because one thing that's really important is accurate mediastinal staging. We need to know what we're treating. Um, and I think that we need to really fo push forward the fact that patients who have got stage three disease on a PET scan do need full mediastinal staging because we need to know what we've got to treat and whether we treat it surgically or whether we treat it with chemoradiotherapy. And it was interesting, one of the um, uh, uh, selected poster sessions from Manchester um, was looking at um, stage uh, three disease where um, patients had been staged as having single station disease on full mediastinal staging, but actually at surgery, a third of them had more advanced disease than we originally thought. So even with you know state-of-the-art mediastinal staging, we perhaps need to be careful that we're not uh, putting patients forward for surgery that might have more advanced disease that might be better treated with um, chemoradiotherapy followed by adjuvant immunotherapy. And I think the other important thing is that we perhaps need to focus on is um, making sure that people know uh, how to manage the uh, immune-related toxicities in the adjuvant setting. Clearly, pneumonitis is the one that we all worry about. Uh, and I think that we have got, most centers I think and I hope have got good um, pathways for managing these immune-related toxicities. Um, but also just making sure that people who might have sort of marginal, uh, who, who may be marginally eligible, so uh, patients say with rheumatoid arthritis who, who might shy away from giving immunotherapy, we actually maybe are a little bit more adventurous in, in, in actually trying to give immunotherapy and working with the site-specific doctors like rheumatologists to make sure that you get through the uh, perhaps less uh, uh, severe immune-related or immune-related diseases that might normally exclude people from these, from these therapies. Absolutely agree. It really is about maximizing the opportunities for all of our patients at every stage. And part of this as you pointed out, is accurate staging. So I'm going to bring Neil into the conversation. Neil, you've done a lot of work with um, um, colleagues around the UK about uh, defining standards for staging. It was sort of discussed in part at, at BTOG, but you know, perhaps you could summarize for us about mediastinal staging and who needs 
um, mediastinal staging. Often I hear, well, it's just an N1 node uh, on PET. That patient should go straight to surgery. Should those patients undergo EBUS staging? Uh, and if you have um, uh, N2 nodes on, on PET, does, does EBUS add anything more uh, to, to, to staging? What, what's the current uh, uh, recommendations? Thanks, Andre. So, yeah, we have very clear um, national guidance and it's consistent with the international guidance as well from the US and, uh, and Europe now. We have very clear indications for when to carry out an EBUS. So there are, there are four or five main indications. Firstly, any PET-AVID lymph nodes. So in the example you just gave of um, an N2 node being positive on a PET, that needs confirmation. That there's a 30 to 40% false positive rate uh, you don't want to assume that that is a malignant node. Similarly, PET does miss lymph nodes in the mediastinum, particularly small ones. So it has a sensitivity of around 80%. So invasive staging with, with EBUS is really crucial. So any PET positive lymph nodes, any lymph nodes that are greater than a centimeter in short axis should be sampled. Thirdly, if there is an N1 node, we know that the risk of occult N2 disease is around 20 to 30%, so they should be sampled. Um, if you don't do that and send them straight to surgery, you're missing out on a conversation with the patient on, on going through the treatment options. Your MDT is not fully informed of the patient's stage to discuss clinical trials, induction treatment, and so on. Other indications include if the primary is central or if the primary has low FDG avidity or a maximum diameter of greater than three centimeters. So there is actually a large selection of patients that should undergo invasive mediastinal staging. All guidelines now suggest that should be done by EBUS as the initial uh, uh, investigation combined with EUS if, uh, if possible. And it's actually a, a nice quality standard that we invasively stage um, patients with stage three disease as well. So um, hopefully, Sandra, there is, you know, a growing swell of respiratory physicians out there with their EBUS scopes who know when to put their hand up in an MDT and say, this patient needs invasive mediastinal staging. And then when they're approaching the case in the endoscopy suite, they know that they need to be doing a systematic approach where they're sampling N3 nodes, N2 nodes, and N1 nodes uh, in that order and sampling any nodes that are greater than five millimeters and always including paratracheal and subcarinal nodes. So quite a lot of information there and quite a lot of, you know, things that we can do as, as pulmonologists in, in this area, but I think really vital, particularly as we move into an era where we're going to be discussing immunotherapy prior to surgery, perhaps, or um, other neoadjuvant treatments, or even adjuvant treatments after as well. We, we need to get more accurate um, mediastinal staging. Also, my last, my last point there would be when, when faced with a patient with any of those factors in the mediastinum, always think about brain imaging early on in the, uh, in the patient pathway. It, it can save you know, a week or two trying to get an MRI later on. Thank you, uh, uh, Neil. David, I'm going to bring you in to, just to follow up from uh, the discussion about mediastinal staging because some patients will go on to have surgery and have uh, identified N2 uh, involvement at the time of surgery, either intentionally or unintentionally. 
Um, now, there's always been a debate about these patients and adjuvant uh, radiotherapy. We, we've had the lung art uh, trial uh, reported uh, previously, and at BTOG, uh, Dr. Le Pichu gave a very nice overview uh, of that, that study. So, you know, maybe you can summarize for us. I think the overall message of that trial, which randomized patients postoperatively to either adjuvant radiotherapy or not, was that there was no benefit. But is that really the case? Uh, and is there still a question on who should get adjuvant radiotherapy? David? Yes, there's still very much um, questions about adjuvant um, radiotherapy. I think what the lung art established is that for at the moment for pure N2 disease that has been completely resected, so an R0 resection, then uh, radiotherapy is probably not something that we would recommend at the moment. And although the lung art study showed that recurrence rates, uh, local recurrence rates were less in the radiotherapy group, um, there were excess deaths in that group, which we think were probably related to car cardiac or cardiovascular toxicity from the radiation. Now, looking forward, that might be something that we should focus on uh, in the future to see if there are better ways of directing the radiotherapy, be it with um, better imaging or defining the cardiac organs or defining people who might um, benefit or, or be it increased cardiac toxicity or using protons, for instance. But I think that, that that's a possibility, but maybe uh, it's better to try and get things done uh, in the neoadjuvant setting and getting it right and selecting patients for surgery who shouldn't ever need to have post-operative radiotherapy. And that brings me on to the, the group that still, I think, do need to have adjuvant radiotherapy, and that's the R1 and R2 resections, so whether it's microscopic or macroscopic re residual disease, or indeed where there is extra capsular spread, so that the, the disease has extended out of the lymph node, and Cecile mentioned this in her talk, that the, there are a proportion of patients where the disease has actually escaped from the lymph node, and we should probably uh, they should not be counted as R0. Um, I think in practice, um, certainly where I work, we very, very rarely see R2 disease. So we're really focusing on R, R1, microscopic residual disease. And there is data which does definitely suggest that there is a benefit in post-operative radiotherapy. But that's a challenge because, um, first of all, it's not that common. Uh, and I think oncologists are, we don't see a terribly uh, large amount of cases that fall into that R1 category. And the second, I think, is a, is a really an unmet need that when someone is, uh, is decided in the MDT that someone needs um, post-operative radiotherapy for R1, an R1 resection, um, there really needs to be a full MDT discussion about what is the target volume because you can't see the tumor. It's been removed. It's been microscopically perhaps not removed, but it, it, you cannot see it. So what you need to do, and it's really important, I do stress this to, to all our, our trainees, is that you need to sit down with the surgeon, with the radiologist, 
and with the pathologist and actually define best you can. And it's still maybe an area where, you know, it is the weakest link in the chain. Define the target volume uh, for that particular patient as to where the resection margin was in one and where it is on the CT scan and what's at risk. Sometimes clips can be put by the surgeons for help, but um, I think it's something that we really do need to sort of up our game on and actually this very difficult and difficult to define area of, of giving radiation. Um, but I think it's a really important one. Um, but maybe, you know, what we need to do going forward is with newer therapies, better staging, actually have a much better profile of, of people who will hopefully, I think an ideal would be that no one needed post-operative radiotherapy, uh, that we have other treatments, which means that that is not needed, um, that we should reserve radiotherapy for where we know there is you know, really, really major benefits like inoperable stage three disease. Thank you. And, um, you know, may, we, we're, we're having um, newer preoperative therapies starting to come through. Perhaps this is going to reduce the number of R1 resections that we, yeah. that we see. And we have, you know, previously got very good data to say that neoadjuvant chemotherapy has similar effects to adjuvant chemotherapy and for various reasons we've all settled on adjuvant chemotherapy seen some very impressive results with um, neoadjuvant um, immune checkpoint inhibitor as monotherapy in experimental early phase trials and the checkmate 816 trial reported at the aacr meeting this is a randomized phase three trial of preoperative chemotherapy plus or minus nivolumab. Uh, Samreen, you, you talked about this a bit at, at BTOG. I mean, I mean, are we right to be excited about this study? Uh, tell us about the study uh, and what your thoughts are. Okay. So, um, you know, finally moving to an area where hopefully we'll be curing lung cancer rather than just palliating symptoms. Um, so the the key points in my mind when I sort of reiterated that in my talk was, A, is it safe to give the treatment up front? Because we don't want to compromise a uh, potentially curative surgery by making these patients not fit for surgery. So there's a number of phase twos um, that were done looking at um, giving the adjuvant chemo together with immune checkpoint inhibitors, um, various combinations, and looking at safety, tolerability, getting to surgery, et cetera. Then there's, um, so, and that, that's been proven that that's safe to deliver upfront before surgery and not compromising the surgical reception. The second point is, are there any surrogate markers we can use rather than the usual disease-free survival and overall survival? And um, response, um, uh, path complete pathological response, like we've seen in other um, cancers such as breast cancer, looks like uh, as an emerging surrogate marker for disease-free survival and overall survival. And then there's a specific um, entity which we've identified in lung cancer, which is major pathological response. And this is defined by less than 10% of tumor, viable tumor left after your systemic treatment. And those, both those um, endpoints, complete pathological response and major pathological response, look as if, as if they are as good as it gets at the moment for surrogate markers for disease-free survival. So that's the second caveat. The third caveat is, um, 
are we going to see disease-free survival and overall survival differences between giving chemotherapy versus chemotherapy immunotherapy combination? And uh, as you've just mentioned, the Checkmate 816 study I looked at the primary endpoint in this study was complete pathological response. And then a secondary endpoint was a major pathological response. And those, those two entities reported at AACR. And we're looking at, um, in, in the um, study, it reported up to 40%, 39, something like that, percent of response rates um, with combined checkpoint inhibitors and chemotherapy versus 10% chemotherapy uh, response rates. So there's a major difference in responses to start off with. I'm hoping that this will translate into disease-free survival and overall survival. Um, but the, the other main endpoint that we want to think about is, is this laying down long-term immunity in our patients. So even if we can't eradicate microscopic disease with our systemic treatment, are we able to lay down memory cells and long-term immunity, which will fight against emergence of um, metastatic disease further down the line? And that's going to be really the panacea that we're all waiting um, to emerge in lung cancer. I think that's right. You know, uh, in a few uh, weeks' time, we'll have the Empower 010 uh, randomized phase three uh, trial data set, hopefully reading out at ASCO, um, which randomized patients post-operatively to uh, adjuvant atezolizumab or not. And we've had a press release uh, highlighting that uh, we have a positive trial. So, you know, I, for one, am very much looking forward to this uh, uh, information. Finally, the other hot topic was the ADURA trial in which patients that were EGFR mutant, uh, exon 19 deletion and l 85 who had undergone complete resection, uh, were randomized to receive adjuvant osimertinib or not with a primary endpoint of disease-free survival. And the study was massively positive uh, for disease-free survival, a hazard ratio you know, in excess of uh, 0.2. Uh, Neil, what does that mean for our, for our patients? I, I think the, uh, so far to my knowledge, um, osimertinib in the adjuvant setting hasn't, is still being assessed uh, by NICE. So currently no, no change, but a lot of uh, excitement and I think people paused. I think one of, the, one of the big changes that's going to have to take place is the concept of molecular profiling in early stage disease. And um, I'd like to think a lot of um, multidisciplinary teams are already primed for this. Um, we've been, one of the things that's part of the optimal pathway to achieve that, to get molecular testing back in 10 days, we're all advocating the use of reflex testing. And therefore, hopefully it won't be too much of an extension to, um, to, to, to also get that reflex testing done for our patients with, uh, with early stage disease. And I think it, it will also change our um, conversations with patients uh, uh, upfront as well, particularly if we have the result of an EGFR test as, as they're being referred uh, for surgery. Uh, as respiratory physicians, we're very used to discussing the possibility of adjuvant treatment with patients um, based on uh, clinical staging. So um, I, I think it will uh, affect uh, MDTs in a, in a number of ways, uh, potentially, assuming obviously in the UK that uh, uh, approval is granted. 
Well, I, I totally agree, Neil, and I think that's a really exciting note with which uh, to end on. Uh, I'd like to thank all of you around the table for your uh, insights, your expertise and your knowledge and sharing uh, your learnings from the BTOG uh, 21 annual meeting. So thank you very much, Neil, Samarin and David, uh, for your insights. And I'd like to thank the audience for uh, listening to us. And I hope to join everyone again at another edition of the Lung Cancer Sessions on VJ Oncology sometime soon. Thank you, everyone, and goodbye. Thank you to our expert panel and to you for listening to this lung cancer session with VJ Oncology. If you have found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your favourite podcast app, including Apple and Spotify, so we can continue to deliver our expert-led content directly to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJ Oncology to join in the conversation and visit vjoncology.com for the latest updates in the field.